folks, and welcome to the podcast, Duets from the Trenches, Musicians You Should Know. This is a show about musicians who are not from NYC or LA, but rather practice their art and share their love of music with the rest of the country, from the rest of the country, or world for that matter. I suppose I shouldn't limit this program to just Americans. This is studio man Nick Drozdoff here, and I'll be your host. Today's guest is a trumpeter, composer, and arranger, and educator, Drew Hanson from Chicago, Illinois. Drew just released a CD, Stone Forest Sunshower, a wonderful eclectic blend of jazz, avant-garde, and ambient styles. In short, it's simply beautiful modern music. The CD features a wonderful cast of talented artists. Brilliant tenor sax player Artie Black shares his music, as well as another fine tenor player, Dustin Lorenzi. The phenomenal Sam Hastings graces the project with his remarkable skill set on guitar. The CD is blessed with two wonderful bass players, both of whom I've had the honor to work with, Mike Harmon and Katie Ernst. Katie's actually in my little overdub video of my take on Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, which can be found on YouTube. Katie also adds absolutely haunting vocals to the project, giving those tracks some bone-chilling beauty. Finally, an extremely gifted drummer, Matt Carroll, lends his talents to this project. A shout-out should go to Dan Pearson, who did a wonderful job mixing this unique collection. Before we get to the show, I need to take care of the usual business as well as some unusual business. I'll stick the usual business in my closing remarks. Today's program is a little longer. Drew had many ideas he wanted to discuss, and I didn't want to do too much editing. So this will run a little longer than the usual target hour. Hope and dreams. These are two words that kind of underpin this podcast. Many of the listeners here may very well be newer musicians with the hopes and dreams of making their lives all about sharing beauty and peace via art music. Langston Hughes writes, Hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. Emily Dickinson puts it out there in a beautifully abstract way. Hope is a thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. In this context, I find Drew's music particularly touching. Before we get to the interview and duet, I want you to hear his music. This is part of why the show is a little longer. I'm going to play the first track on Drew's new CD in its entirety, the full 6 minutes and 52 seconds. The title of the tune... We sing about hope. Yeah, I just did that.
Hey, Drew, thanks for being here today. Really do appreciate you coming in to be part of my little uh, podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. All right. All right, this thing that I call the show Duets from the Trenches, uh, Unsung Heroes, so to speak. And I, again, I want to pay homage to folks who are uh, deserving of the, uh, more recognition. Uh, you know, you've got these people from the West Coast, you know, the heck with those guys. You know, and, yeah, yeah, they're, they're cool, but you know, enough. Let's get you guys in here. When did you decide to make music your life's work? How did you know this was something you wanted to do? Well, I had been, uh, I'd been involved with music since middle school, but the first time that I really um, thought about it seriously as a career was when I was uh, in, I think, my second summer at uh, Birch Creek Jazz Camp oh, yeah. in your home away from home in much fabled <laughs> Door County. Yeah. Um, and it, it's this little jazz camp of maybe, I don't know, 50 kids uh, up in rural Wisconsin. Uh, there's fabulous faculty. And I was having a blast. And I was making great music with really talented people. And uh, and it dawned on me that this, uh, in theory, didn't have to come to an end. That I could, I could make this my life's work. I could make this something that I pursued uh, every day. And, uh, and that, that basically cemented it for me once I entered my senior year of high school, I was practicing a lot harder. Every, every chance that I got, every free period that I had at school, I spent uh, in the music building practicing and trying to get better, trying to prepare myself for the next step, which was college. And college was where? Uh, college was at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. I studied under uh, Tito Carrillo. For all four years, that's right. My sage, my mentor. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I he was he was absolutely what I needed at the time. Um, yeah, yeah. I I was um, uh, a little unseasoned, uh, particularly with with respect to improvisation. Uh, I at the time fancied myself a lead player, and I think that I was probably a pretty good high school lead player. Um, not with any preternatural talent or anything like that, but I think that I I could swing. One thing that I did, I think, very well as, uh, you know, a young student of jazz was listening a lot. I had records. Yeah, my, my dad uh, actually turned me on to a lot of really great records. Um, obviously, kind of blue giant steps, but also um, I really loved the Marsalis uh, Family Reunion uh, CD. It's a live concert. Hmm. It has. It's basically all of the Marsalis family, and I think Reginald Veal on bass. I want to say. Yeah. Um, but I had listened basically since the time that I was I don't know 11, 12 years old to a lot of jazz music, and I had I could swing. I could swing yeah. um, by the time I was in high school, and as you know, uh, lead trumpet player has to swing. Yeah, they will swing. Yeah. Um, but in, in terms of improvisation, I was I was pretty pretty unprepared. And when I got to the University of Illinois, Tito kind of took me along as as slowly as I needed to go, which was uh, probably embarrassingly slowly in the early goings on. But um, but he was exactly what I needed. And the and the thing is is that he didn't let me move on to a new concept until I had. Uh, mastered the one on which we were working 
Yeah, that's interesting thinking. Yeah, I like that as a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Talking about improvisation, Tito, uh, any specific things that he worked you on? Anything specific that he did with you? Technique, wise, I mean, like technique, I don't mean like trumpet technique, any uh, technique for developing the ability to improvise uh, cogently? Well, one of the one of the early things that we started on was transcription, which was something that um, I think I had kind of unconsciously been doing from an early age, but I hadn't been doing seriously, and I hadn't been doing enough of. Yeah, I had listened to a lot of music, but I uh, I discovered a website called JazzTrumpetSolos.com. Oh, okay. Yeah, I heard of it. I heard of it. <laughs> Probably when I was, I don't know, in eighth grade or something, and I had, I could, I could uh, read my favorite trumpet solos instead of figuring them out. Yeah, you know, yeah. which was I, I didn't at the time. I didn't realize how limiting that was. Yeah, I've got all those Sloan books. They're nice, but you're exactly it, yeah. Right. It's it's really it's uh, it it's not the way to go about it. I now with my own students, we do not work out of transcription books. Um, you know, if they want to, if they want to learn a solo, they get to learn it by ear, uh, and that's the that's the way that Tito sort of yeah, yeah. had me doing it. And then the other thing was, uh, part of it was uh, was just learning how to do the math of two five one. Yeah, um, I could, uh, like I said, I could I could swing pretty well. Um, I could I could play over blues okay. Okay. Um, yeah. But sort of learning the you know chord scale relationships. Uh, that kind of stuff. He gave me some voice leading exercises with respect to two five one that uh, really sort of helped graduate my ears from just kind of hearing uh, key centers to getting a little bit more specific about harmony, whether and and also target notes. You know, having my Tell me about target notes. That, that's what people talk about. This. I have to ask. I have never thought about that. Well, it, it basically, ta- I mean, when I when I say target notes, I'm really just talking about the rules of good voice leading. So okay. essentially, we we have exercises where it would you'd begin your line on uh, the third, and then say say it's a long two five one. Let's just say yeah. D minor seven bar of D minor seven bar of G seven. Uh, two bars of C major seven. Okay. So we would, our lines would start on F. Um, and then once we get to the G seven on beat one, not before and not after, mm-hmm. it would be B. And then when we got to the C major seven on beat one, it would be E. And so instead of just kind of noodling around in uh, key centers, we're, 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 we're getting a little bit more specific, a little bit more intentional okay. about what exactly it is we are trying to say with the line, uh, all the while trying to observe good voice leading, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and not necessarily jumping around. And as time went on, we would jump around like a lot more. Mm-hmm. Another mm-hmm. thing that we worked on sort of later in college was shapes based off of um, chords. So um, we were <laughs> we were working on Nefertiti. Uh, when I was, I think, a senior, probably, okay. um, and we were we were kind of drilling some of those uh, dominant seven, flat thirteen, uh, sharp nine <laughs> chords, um, and and he showed and he, he showed me some uh, 
some really cool sort of wide open shapes that outline the chord. Okay. Um, but uh, but are a little bit more Tito Tito used to say exotic. But uh, yeah, yeah. but just something that was a little bit more I guess modern sounding. Okay. Um, and but again everything with him and perhaps this is just like my experience because it's exactly what I needed. But um, everything was with an ear toward uh, like good harmonic hygiene. So to okay, speak. Yeah, that's interesting. Tunes uh, in your process working with Tito or or outside of that uh, studio. What about tunes, learning tunes? Is that something that uh, was a part of your uh, jazz development experience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, early on, you know, I, I knew <laughs> I knew no tunes. Um, <laughs> so, so Tito got me started, um, you know, where, where a lot of people get started with uh, autumn leaves and okay. Yes, yeah. volume fifty-four of Jamie Ebersole. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I we we definitely did a lot of tune work. One of the things that um, you know, this basically sounds like an advertisement for Tito Carrillo and the U of I School of Music. Okay. But uh, but one of the things that he he was really big on was learning new concepts uh, concurrently with new tunes. So you learn concepts as the tunes okay. that you're learning. Um, require of you, so you're not you're not learning minor two five one harmony when you know before you play any tunes with minor two five one harmony. If that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Uh, and you're not and you're not dealing with you know major seven sharp five chords before you have tunes that require that. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then another thing that he preached big time was memorization because uh, okay. you know, a lot of people I think wrongly view memorization as sort of like a bucket that you fill up um, and you can you can get to the top at which point you can memorize no more and other stuff starts yeah. sort of escaping, leaking out um, but Tito talked about memorization as a muscle and every time that you memorize something you flex that muscle, it gets stronger and that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I and I think that um, I hope it's supported by science. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, he he was also right in requiring me to get away from the page as soon as possible. Yeah. So in learning a new tune, uh, we might a lot of a lot of tunes we would sort of. Uh, we might not necessarily attack the harmony by ear. Um, I don't know if I was quite there yet at that point, um, but I would say that probably within ten minutes of looking at a new tune, we'd get away from the page in some part, uh, even if it's just for a portion of the tune. Uh, and I think that that it really develops a deeper relationship uh, with the tune. With respect to pitch, it reinforces, I think, pitching your brain, yeah, uh, yeah. which, as an improviser, is key. Yeah, yeah. Here's a, a funny anecdote with uh, respect to learning tunes. This was later on in college. I was in uh, a combo led by Chip Stevens, who mm -hmm. is on the piano faculty down there. And 
the the combo sort of program at, at U of I was a lot more geared towards student composition and student uh, arrangements, original okay. music, uh, uh, exploring that way, and less geared toward tunes. Okay. Uh, I, I really liked it. I think it was motivational for a lot of people to write, which... Uh, you know, most of your favorite jazz musicians mm-hmm. are also writers. Yeah, you know, yeah. Train, Wayne Shorter, yeah. uh, you know, Charlie Parker are all writers as yeah. well as incredible improvisers. One rehearsal, Chip was lamenting the fact that we weren't playing any tunes, and he was uh, he was basically having a two sided argument by himself. <laughs> <laughs> for like 15 yeah, minutes in rehearsal where where he's like well you guys you need to know tunes but there aren't any gigs where you need to play tunes when I was when I was growing up I, I yeah, was okay. playing five nights couple, a week in a hotel for four, for four hours I was yeah. just playing as, all the tunes that I knew but there are, those gigs don't exist anymore and uh, but this is the tradition and you need to know the tradition and it's funny I've thought I've thought about that uh, conversation that Chip had with himself uh, <laughs> <laughs> kind of a lot um, and sort of waffling back and forth uh, over the years uh, on you know which side I fell, whether it was more important to compose or more important to learn tunes. And obviously they're not mutu- mutually exclusive, but uh, I, I recently actually have been doing a lot more tune learning, a lot more serious tune learning. Um, just because, like, I actually don't believe that all of those gigs have dried up, and yeah. I do think that it's uh, it's definitely a barrier of entry thing. There, there are tunes that you must know, yeah. uh, and and the and the other thing is is that it, it's not just about knowing the tunes; it's about hearing the harmonic structure. How are they? Uh, how are they pieced together? And uh, and I think that that obviously informs your own writing. Yeah, yeah. i got to pop a little something in here. Now, I don't want to talk about age, but I've mentioned in both of the previous podcasts, I mean, I'm a baby boomer. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, how should we put this? Your parents are probably baby boomers, they right? Oh, okay. <laughs> so that puts you in the context you were born, like, what, 1990-ish or so? Yeah, okay? yeah. Okay, now, I'm really interested in hearing your insight on all this because it's going to be different from mine, okay? Mm -hmm. Your commentary about tunes right there definitely triggers a a bit of a split in my head and uh, was it Chip Stevens? Chip Stevens, yeah. That his uh, uh, argument with himself definitely is something that, again, I'll come back to that momentarily. Drew, you're working a lot and I'm really impressed with that. How did you start working? Uh, How did your career begin? How did you start getting work? Well, uh, I actually think that my first professional gig after I graduated from college, I graduated from college, I moved uh, up to Chicago, Mm -hmm. and I think that my first uh, professional gig was actually a gig that you subbed out to me. Oh, was that the Easter thing? Uh, No, it was the Buddy Rich Big Band. Oh, Buddy Rich. Oh, yeah. Uh, We played a gig. (laughs) We, yeah, played a, okay. we played a gig at a, in a, a riverboat casino. And the hearing survived the evening. Right? I, yeah, <laughs> so, somehow, some way. Um, but yeah, it was definitely the loudest gig of my life. Um, <laughs> but, okay. Yeah, sorry about that part. No. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but yeah, I think that was that was my first gig, and actually, I had um, I had a little bit of a horror story associated with that gig. I uh, I live. I keep a pretty detailed calendar, but I live, yeah. like, I, I talk to a lot of musicians, and uh, I found that many have this same fear. I live in constant dread of forgetting about a gig or a rehearsal. Do you have yeah. that? I, I actually have done it. I, well, so, so I, um, <laughs> my girlfriend, now my fiancé, had uh-huh. finished uh, teaching for the day, and she wanted to get dinner, and I was... I was excited to, you know, get dinner with her, uh-huh. and I totally blew off the rehearsal for that gig. Oh no! <laughs> and I got a call from Kathy Rich. She's like, "Hey, uh, where are close? you?" And, I was, oh, and that I, you, your heart had to sink. Oh no! Well, I was home. mortified, and and uh, and I don't know if it's good or bad, but I didn't I didn't say that I had car troubles. I was just like, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's uh, that's my mistake. I, I forgot about your rehearsal. <laughs> oh, well. uh, so I actually I, I hopped in um, I hopped in I, I think I left. We were at Panera and I, I like just left immediately uh, and sped as fast. It was in Naperville, so that's about I don't know ninety minutes. Yeah, uh, oh, seventy minutes at that time. Uh, that time of day, and so I, I drove as fast as I possibly could to get there. And I, what's funny is, I guess that I was one of four or five people that night who had just, just forgotten like, or just whiffed on it. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny, uh, Mike McGrath, who we both know, uh, yeah, had never lets me forget about it. Oh, of course not. <laughs> all, Michael needle you something, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I messed that up big time, and I, I have to my knowledge never, uh never missed a rehearsal or a gig since uh but i like i said i live in constant fear <laughs> well i keep yeah it's where um uh <coughs> i count and things like that can come in really like you pop yeah, them right yeah. in there and and, and, and i think cloud is everywhere my uh yeah and the reminders are just going off constantly <laughs> for, for stuff that i have to do how, how do you can uh continue to develop your work after that uh, event well, so uh, a lot of the gigs that I had early on were big band gigs, okay. um, you know, bands at Fitzgerald's, Bill O'Connell, yeah. um, uh, played with the Grandstand big band yeah, a yeah. couple times, yeah. uh, John Burnett, um, but I was also going out to the Lily's Jam session, which was at the time with okay. Corbin Andrick, um, and it Is was... Is that still going on? No, uh, it it's actually kind of kind of funny. Corbin kind of, uh, kind of got fed up once and for all, and told Lily of Lily's that he was out. Yeah. Um, and I, she actually asked me if I wanted to lead it, and so wow. I, I led it for pro- I don't know, like huh? five or so weeks. And, and I had a project at the time with uh, Christian Newman, who is. Uh, an incredible world class drummer who's now okay. on the road with Jacob Collier and uh, Sam Hastings, uh, oh, yeah. a guitar player also from U of I. And we had a little trio thing going, and I thought that it was a really good opportunity to get able to uh, get an opportunity to play weekly. And so uh, I took it, it was poorly attended. Uh, as it turns out, Corbin and uh, his band were a large draw. Oh, <laughs> yeah, for the Lilies, but um, but anyway. I, I, I was going to Lily's when it was, you know, a really vibrant place every single week. And, and it was great. Everybody, 
you know, all of sort of the cats in my age bracket were going. Marquise Hill was going. Uh, okay. Chris McBride was going. Yeah. Um, Dustin Lorenzi, Artie Black, Alex Beltran, all of those uh, great tenor players were there like every week. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Not to mention Corbin and the rest of his yeah. band. Yeah. Rob Clearfield would go. So it was like musicians who are now. Uh, Katie Ernst uh, yeah. was going, but um, it, it, like it, it was people who like like Marquise is like famous now, yeah, and yeah. you know Monk contest winner, um, mm-hmm. you know, Katie has racked up awards. Everybody, I mean, not the oh, awards yeah. of the end all be all, but they, but like the, the it was a really great scene to sort of yeah. grow in, yeah, um, and I would go often, and yeah. and I I made connections and. So a jam session scene. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, and and some some friends from U of I, uh, Colin, your son, yeah, uh, yeah. Josh Torrey, uh, Artie Black, and and I, and uh, Andrew Green, and Mike Harmon, uh, who was a bass player who I yeah. also went to yeah, U of I with. Yeah, uh, we formed like a little collective band that we called Collider and, and we okay, played sure. we played some gigs. You saw you saw your stuff on SoundCloud, Collider? Uh that you would have to ask Josh. Okay. <laughs> I do not uh or folks, I, just I, Google I, SoundCloud. Have, I think the only remnants of, of Collider exists in maybe my Sibelius folders. Okay. And maybe uh maybe in my iTunes. But yeah we I mean we basically we wrote for each other. It was a sextet and it was compositionally driven we took definitely took some risks compositionally um yeah. but it was also like a way to sort of meet people i met Artie black at a collider rehearsal and i you know i run with him every day and he's okay. on my record and uh he's a wonderful friend but like yeah. that band sort of uh opened some stuff up for me and and we started playing out and that was really my first experience playing uh with my own group sort of post-college so i'm hearing a lot of jam sessions and kind of a crew from college and your buddies that you kind of just yeah been running with i was i was really lucky to graduate college move up to chicago with a lot of really great musicians yeah who you know we 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 are well represented yeah uh, it's interesting that's you know similar experiences for a lot of guys from my generation too. Well, absolutely. I know, like the jazz consortium is basically well, that's basically the like Northern Illinois guys. Um, Rich Daniels, uh, Chicago City Lights Orchestra. Mm-hmm. Those are a lot of guys who went to college together uh, originally, and uh, yeah. So it's a that's a yeah. tradition. And I don't think it's any. Be. It's not any different from like the NIU guys now. You know, like Marquise was an NIU guy. Okay, Chris McBride was an NIU guy. John Moore is a NIU guy. Chris Davis is an NIU guy. Rich Moore. Uh, you know, all those, yeah. Ian Torres, Victor Garcia, those are all like, I think that, um, you know, DePaul has the same thing. That's it's just, it, yeah, it's, it's sort of like, like a baked in. Uh, Robert Davis was a uh, latter day DePaul guy. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it sort of helps uh, cushion the scene a little yeah, bit. Yeah, <laughs> You know, that's definitely, that's, you know, it's interesting that that, that is a something you can count on still. Right. Yeah. And now Drew and I are going to play a little duet. And this is from the Arbins book. It's called Martha. Uh, Drew's playing the first part, and I'm playing the second part. We just kind of sight read through this very quickly in the studio before we got to the interview.
When they first got started, what did you see as the necessary survival skills for a newer musician? I well, I think that number one is ambition, sort of the willingness to hmm. go out, check out the scene, go to other people's gigs, go to jam sessions. Okay, that's um, interesting. I like hearing that because that was a question I was going to ask. Really. Do you go out and listen to other people? Yeah, I think that's a that's a big thing. That's something that uh, I think that it becomes easy for stuff like that to fall by the wayside as mm-hmm. sort of life gets a little bit more uh, tightly packed, yeah. so to speak. Um, like I think that nowadays I don't do as good a job as I should or as I did because yeah. uh, I'm, I'm teaching a lot more and working yeah. a lot more. But back then I was I was going out most nights. Yeah. You know, what was it? Wednesday was Lily's. Lily's, I think, was Wednesday's, I yeah. recall. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there were, there was always gigs in, on Monday, <laughs> gigs on Tuesdays at Jerry's, I want to say, yeah. um, and at the Whistler as well, and weekend stuff, obviously. But I think that ambition is a big one, sort of willing to put yourself out there. Mm-hmm. Another another one is breeding. Okay. I think that's big, breeding and having great ears. What do you mean by great ears? Well... Like when you're on a when you're on a jobbing gig, and there's not music, and as you know, as a horn player, mm-hmm. you're expected to sort of just come up with horn lines occasionally. Yeah, yeah. And being able to come up with something that's musically interesting and <laughs> maybe a little bit denser than just one voice, you know, unison type of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Being able to flesh that out, mm-hmm. that's useful. Make yourself useful to a mm-hmm. to a jobbing band that way. Being able to read that music as well. I think that even when you're playing someone's original music, you're at a rehearsal, you want to be able to read it down the first time and work on more interesting stuff than notes and rhythms. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the same obviously goes for the big band. Yeah, yeah. Do you see any pitfalls that, um, or you know, minefields that a newer, younger musician might have to be wary of as they sort of work their way into an individual scene? Oh, that's a good question. Um, one of the things that, uh, circling back to Tito, one of the things yeah. that Tito told me, and actually Colin as well, we were at uh, dinner at 90 Miles Cuban Cafe, mm-hmm. and Tito told us that it's important to keep composing, uh, oh. and it's important to keep creating, Yeah, and that Chicago... Chicago can kind of absorb you as a scene, especially okay. the jobbing side. You can there are a lot of there are a lot of really tremendous musicians who set out to be movers and shakers who get comfortable with the whatever it is. Okay, I two can nights see that. A, two nights a weekend of yeah. of jobbing weddings and all of that. The money is obviously a lot more comfortable. The it, it's it, it, you know exactly what it's going to be every single time. There's not a lot of guesswork, and it can be seductive to yeah. to try to, uh, especially when you're trying to make ends meet. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and he told us there's no shame in jobbing. There's no shame in jobbing a lot, but the that's not the reason why you got into this. And he knew that of Colin and me, but if, if you, if you want to be a job or if that's like your scene, that there's nothing wrong with that. But he was specifically talking to, to us and, 
Uh, and he said that that's not where you that's not where you started this. Don't don't make that don't make that the focal point of your career as a musician. Uh, and the, I, I think that for me at least it's a it's a balance because we all we know musicians in Chicago who are some of the most gifted players in the city, country, world, etc. Uh, who are content to sit in their apartment and and play and Mm -hmm. only take the gigs that they want to do and they do not job and they do not do that kind of more functional in the sense of like dance music type of music that was actually an old joel um does the name joel daly ring a bell no okay joel was uh back in the day Mm -hmm. was the jazz instructor in chicago Mm -hmm. Uh, tenor sax player extraordinaire and he used to refer to jobbing as functional music yeah and I, I serves a function, man. Yeah, it serves a function, uh, both uh, you know for the the people at the wedding who want to dance badly or whatever, and uh, right, um, and and for the musician who needs to get some food on the table, right. But yeah, I think it's intriguing that Tito specifically addressed being careful about becoming complacent. Uh, yeah, well, that's that. actually that was literally the word that he used was complacency. Okay. Yeah. I think it's about being intentional about what you want to get out of the music. If you want to be just a capital A artist who does exactly what they want to do at all times, be aware that that can be limiting financially. Yeah. Um, and if you want to be a capital J jobber, then just be aware that that can be limiting artistically. But it's all about depending on it, it depends on what you want to get out of the music. It depends on what you want to get out of your journey with it. Back in the day, uh, jobbing bands were run by leader contractors, and they charged maybe four to six hundred bucks a man, right? And they paid out two hundred to two fifty a man for a three-hour gig. And the difference went into their profits or their overhead, you know, paying roadies and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I'm seeing things as having changed for the next generation of jobbers. Uh, more communal? How how would you say that, that is, are things the same as they were back then? Or uh, is, it, is it different? That's a... I don't know. I don't know if I'm the authority on this. I While I do play a lot of weddings, I'm not... Uh, I'm not necessarily a stalwart jobber. I, I don't I don't know that it's necessarily more egalitarian. I, I think that the jobbing band leaders, at least the ones that I've worked with, really try to be fair with their musicians. Yeah. Uh, they try to be fair in terms of obviously pay, but also meals, providing meals and um, paying for transportation costs, etc. But hmm. I, I don't I don't necessarily think that because they, they have overhead, too, and I, I, like, yeah. I don't fault them. That yeah, I didn't mean to apply that I faulted them for this. It's just it's a way of working. No, right? yeah, for sure. When and I, I was a jobbing band leader, that's pretty much what I did. Right, because they, I mean, they have, they have costs. It's like, it's like, it's kind of the same thing with, like, a restaurant, right? Like, yeah. people, like people go to restaurants, and if you're going to complain about, like, well, this steak costs X, yeah. uh, like, you got to understand that that steak, first of all, had a cost in and of itself. Right, right. Plus that steak is paying for the lights, it's paying for the gas, it's paying for the water, it's paying for the, you know, taking the garbage away, it's paying for the health care plans of the employees, hopefully. Um, and there's, you know, there's a lot that goes into paying for that steak. And so I'm happy to pay what they're asking me because I know that it's not just the steak that 
you know, I'm paying for. Yeah. Uh, similarly with the, you know, the jobbing band, they have a lot to do. A lot of time, a lot of times they play MC. They uh, they sh- they play wedding planner. <laughs> I've yeah. seen that. You know, where they're oh, sort of shepherding along. The I'll uh, tell you from experience, it is brutal. I can't imagine. And in I between <laughs> in between Bridezilla <laughs> and the band is like I, I, I hated it. <laughs> yeah, I uh, it's you know. Diplomat, all you know, all yeah. of the above. I know that uh, like Colin has a horror story of playing in a jobbing band, uh, having the bride's sister come up to the band leader uh, during a tune, asking the band leader if he had heard of a different jobbing band. Oh, um, oh no! The, the the band leader said I, I, that in fact he had, and that they're great, which they are. And then. <laughs> The bride's sister says, well, they're a lot better than you are, and then just walks away. Oh, my. You know, they, I have no problem with leader fees. They do a lot more heavy lifting yeah. uh, and coordinating. And I, so uh, when my cousin got married, uh, one of the bands that I played in, Brooke and the Nice Things, played her wedding. Yeah. And I sort of, by default, um, and out of my own foolishness, wound up being the representative of the band uh-huh. uh, and there's a lot of planning and there's a lot of coordination <laughs> and it's, it's not up my alley it has it's nothing not to do with my company. skill set yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well it's interesting it sounds like that the jobbing scenario with jobbing band leaders and that kind of existence is a whole lot different from when I was doing it more full time I don't, I don't necessarily think it is obviously okay. I wasn't on the scene uh, with you, but uh, back in that day, but I it was a quantity thing. I mean, a lot of the contractors I worked for were working well over. Well, yeah, I think, I think that's probably the biggest change is the the availability of gig. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. um, I think that obviously more people are getting DJs. DJs. Um, iPod mix, right? I, I haven't I haven't seen that yet. You haven't seen that? Yeah, well, I'm sorry. Now I'm now I'm in the age where all of my friends are getting married, so yeah, I'll keep bumping into it. that soon. But uh, yeah, but yeah, a lot lot more DJs. Uh, and I get it. I'm play, I'm planning a wedding now, mm-hmm. uh, and a DJ would be a lot cheaper than a band. Yeah. Um, yeah. However, I. <laughs> I've played at a lot of weddings. I've been to weddings. Uh, I've compared between DJs and live bands, and I will tell you that with 100% uh, certainty that bands create more, better energy oh, it's, than, it's, than DJs. It's without a doubt. You plan, you, you have the wedding that you can afford, uh, and, if, and if a DJ is, is what, you know, What's on the menu? Then, then that like that's okay. But uh, but I think that I think that people should still give bands a chance. Yeah, without <laughs> yeah, speaking to the choir. Here, yeah, so. I know. yeah. How much time do you devote to practice? Yeah, it's that's a that's an interesting question. Um, as I've as I've sort of expanded my teaching studio, expanded my teaching responsibilities. Uh, Getting more gigs, uh, having to write more. Mm-hmm. What I consider to be practice has sort of shifted. Okay. Um, when I was in college, I was by the time I was a senior, I was probably in the practice room for five hours a day. Okay. Uh, and I 
if you add up ensembles, I was probably getting like between seven and eight hours, uh, maybe sometimes more, nine hours of like horn on face time oh a day. Oh my gosh. It was a lot. I thought I was bad. It, it, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think that I, and I was, I was certainly not the most efficient trumpet player, um, nor am I still, but uh, it, I would, it was not necessarily <laughs> the kindest thing that I could have done on my face. <laughs> um, but I was, I was like, the horn was on my face a lot. Yeah. These days, I try to have the horn on my face for ideally three or four hours. Okay. Um, and, but I consider sight singing, solfege, transcription, and even uh, listening okay. to music, I all consider that sort of under the umbrella of, of practicing. Okay. Because, like, when, like, sight singing, especially for we horn players, horn players it's, yeah. oh, man, it, there, there are a few things that you can do away from the trumpet that would be more beneficial to your trumpet playing than sight singing. Yeah. Or just, like, solfege work. Because yeah. uh, if you can, obviously, as you know, if you can hear those intervals, you, you can hear it, you can play it. Yeah. 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 Now, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but how much time do you devote to developing work or business? Uh, that's where I have fallen short historically. <laughs> <laughs> I try, I've been trying of late to be a lot more diligent uh, with respect to the business end. Um, and I, I recently came out with a, with a record. We, we, but but it what it did is it, it sort of necessitated me uh, getting getting on my game with respect to creating a, a good website um, with respect to um, sort of getting my house in order in terms of BMI stuff. Um, what was BMI that ASCAP? Uh, yes, it did. BMI. Okay, yeah. and. The reason why I did that, uh, I cannot tell you because I do not remember. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, sort of trying to be a little bit more on top of my social media game. I have a Facebook page, Drew Hanson Music, uh, okay. that uh, I, I've been trying to do a better job of staying on top of. Um, but it's tough. It does not come naturally to me, being on the internet. Um, yeah, yeah. But... Definitely. Well, I suppose that's good. I well, I don't know, <laughs> man. I mean, we we talked about this uh, off podcast before, yeah. and kind of at length. I think that uh, it it's necessary for yeah. independent musicians, composers, improvisers, etc. Now to have a presence. It's how you reach yeah. the most people, and I, I I struggle with it. I struggle with uh, you know sort of the vanity aspect of it that I like I call it vanity yeah I, I think understand. that there's a lot of people who are really successful with it who would uh, not call it vanity I think that they they just call it sharing um, the, the, that, that was actually an expression <coughs> uh, vanity publishing right people would uh, write a book and then they would publish it themselves right. and back <laughs> in the 80s they called that vanity publishing right uh, and the same sort of thing dovetailed into a recording right but nowadays, bad news. Everybody's a everybody vanity publisher. You <laughs> have to do that, right? Uh, yeah. So I, vanity carries a negative stigma to it. Yeah, yeah. I'm not yeah. completely sure Absolutely. I would go with that anymore. 
I and I'm trying not to. I think, it, but it, it's my knee jerk reaction to yeah. say, "Well, people don't care about this, or people need, don't need to know about this." Yeah. Or, but the thing is, is that like I see people, uh, I see people writing about like jobbing, like wedding gigs that they're playing. It's like, well, none of these people can go to that wedding unless yeah, they're yeah. like Vince Vaughn and you know oh, yeah, Wilson. Okay. But yeah. like. Uh, like, but you're still telling us that you have this wedding gig. Yeah, okay. And, and I don't know what effect that uh, that is intended to have, but I see, but I see right a lot of people yeah. doing it, man. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like I should just jump off the cliff with the rest of the lemmings. <laughs> I, I kind of feel like what I think you're actually driving at uh, with your website uh, and your new CD is not so much... It's not the same thing. I'm not, here, I'm not seeing it as the same thing. I'm seeing that you know, when people are saying, hey, look at me, I'm playing this gig that nobody else can be at, and they put it up on their Facebook page. Um, okay, that's nice. Um, but you're creating a CD of your own music, and you are sharing it. You are making, you're decorating some time and space with some really beautiful sound. And I think um, uh, the Internet is a way for musicians to kind of level the playing field. I think that that's I think that's true. I think that's fair. Um, yeah, because again, the East and West Coast guys have had they've had it too good for too long, <laughs> and I feel like with the internet, you know, those of us who are out there in the trenches, if you will, have a shot. Okay, you talked about your CD. I have to admit, I really enjoyed it. I listened to it. Thank you. To me, it seems reminiscent of Kenny Wheeler. Uh, wow. I, yeah. I, I I'm hearing that a lot in that, and you're playing, and I particularly like the mixture of vocals. And, um, yeah. and, and horns and stuff. Who was the singer on that? It was Katie Ernst. That was Katie? Yeah. A bass yeah. player and singer? That's right. She, double threat. Yeah, she did. She was wonderful. Yeah, she was, she was a gifted uh, uh, young musician. Okay. Um, uh, I, I do have a couple questions about that. Uh, just tell me about the CD. Tell me about the music. Well, you know, what were your influences? Yeah, so the, the CD is called Stone Forest Sun Shower, okay. uh, which is two of the tunes yeah. that are played back to back on the record um, my my influences I started listening to Ambrose Ekinbusseri okay. when I was uh, I guess probably junior in college um, I actually I went to the old Jazz Record Mart uh, downtown I was trying to buy the new Marquise Hill okay. record and I uh, and they didn't have it in stock and <laughs> I saw Ambrose's record when the heart emerges glistening which was what he recorded after winning the monk competition okay. and uh, and I was like well I've, I've been hearing about this guy I don't have a prayer of pronouncing his name but I'll just pick it up and listen <laughs> to it <laughs> I've and, got one of the CDs and, and uh, yeah. but uh, but I, I, pop, I popped it uh, in the CD player in my car I listened to it and I don't know if you checked out his music at all I have one of the CDs. Got on turn me on. Yeah, it's and it's uh, it's incredible, and I love it. And I consider him um, maybe my one of my greatest musical influences. Um, but when I first heard it, I was like, "Oh man, I have no idea what to do with this. This mm-hmm. is weird." But I mean, personally, I'm really intrigued by kind of people who can embrace the avant-garde. For sure, work. and I think that he does it really effectively. His first record, Prelude to Cora, is sort of like more of a study of his compositions. Okay. Uh, he plays less, but his writing is really excellent. When the Heart Emerges 
Glistening is definitely a little bit more focused on his playing. I think that was probably a directive from Blue Note. And, uh, and I think that the record that followed um, The Imagined Savior is far easier to paint bong titles. Okay. Um, but uh, but I think it, it's kind of a happy mixture of the two with a little bit more exploration in terms of instrumentation. He has one tune on there that is just like strings. But yeah, one of the things with When the Heart Emerges that I really loved was that he was always anchored in melody. Uh, okay. And that's something that I tried to approximate on Stone Forest Sunshower. Yeah. Was, is it, it can get weird, it can get avant-garde, but it's always it's always rooted in melody, and that goes all the way back to Tito, yeah. you know, talking to me about two five one voice leading, etc. Is that melody is first and foremost one of the other big influences was Becca Stevens. She's a she's a singer. She plays guitar. She plays other guitar like instruments, but mm -hmm. she is. Uh, She's awesome. She sort of comes from a, uh, I think she's from North Carolina. She comes from okay. sort of like more bluegrass family band background. Right. Um, and she went to, I want to say, New School in New York. She, right. She's like, she's in with all the all the cats uh, with, with like the Ambroses and Julian Lodge and all of like those, you know, the, the hip the hip people, but uh, she writes some really interesting music, some really evocative lyrics, and she does a really beautiful job of playing with harmony. That was another thing that I tried to sort of add into this record. I'm intrigued by the fact that you included a, a vocalist, a singer. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think, think that's really interesting for a horn player. It's important. I think. Well, I uh, as a horn player, we're, we're constantly told to. Uh, sound like a voice, right? Play yeah. like you're singing, uh -huh. uh, song and wind. I, I actually happen to think that the trumpet and voice sound really beautiful yeah. together. Of course, as I contemplate that, I have to. It begs the question in my head: Whoever sang like Woody Shaw? <laughs> I'm sure there's somebody. Nobody's coming to yeah, mind. Yeah, but, but, but uh, yeah, I, 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 again, I, I, I was hearing Kenny Wheeler, but you. You've outlined your influences very clearly. Well, I was I, I was listening to uh, Kenny Wheeler's music for large and small ensembles. Yeah, sort that's of. Uh, that's a great passage. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's a great record. Yeah. Um, but I, I was I was listening to that. I was listening to um, this tune, "Harvesting Dance" by Aaron Parks, which is off of uh, Invisible Cinema. It's a okay. album that he did. It uh, a lot of that music had sort of been in my brain or in my like quintet book for some time so it kind of spans a lot but sort of the constants were uh ambrose becca stevens uh in, in in working with because i've sat next to you on gigs and listening to your cd um i'm intrigued by a kind of a different way of thinking about trumpet sound uh compared to when i came up yeah. i mean i came up you know listening to doc Serviceson and you know, being a girl with Maynard, um, I, I, I've come up with kind of a, uh, the upbringing of a big kind of a lead, right. you know, bright, brilliant sound. Or my other big guy was Mendez. Uh, but uh, still not that real mellow thing. And I'm hearing with players from your, I hate to use the word, generation, um, 
playing a much more Chet Baker-like thing, uh, or, or even mellower, if I could say that. Yeah. Um, can you comment on that approach, and <laughs> do you see a, a dichotomy, or is, is the thing that I came up with, is that dying off? Um, I, well, I can't, I don't think that it's dying off. I think that when, when I was uh, young, I tried to model my sound off of Miles. Um, okay. I, I wasn't listening to a lot of Chet. I listened to, uh, I listened to sort of Miles between probably 1955 to like 1962. Okay. I like yeah. that's when I was when I was young. That was really what I was into. Just before all that fusion stuff. Uh, no, I would I would say it's sort of bumping right up to the second grade quintet. Okay. Um, so you know, I'm, I'm I'm thinking about kind of blue milestones. Right. Right. Uh, sketches of Spain, Porgy and Bess, relaxing, steaming, cooking, etc. Legendary stuff. Um, so I was listening to that a lot uh, and trying to get as close as I could to copying that sound. Um, I was listening a lot to when Marsalis live at the House of Tribes, yeah. um, which is, you know, close mic'd uh, in a small room. He's playing I think my favorite, my favorite <laughs> Marsalis album is that very first record he did. Oh, yeah. Playing um, a one and a quarter C back and a back yeah. trumpet. Yeah, and you oh, know what? Man. I've actually, I checked out a lot more stuff of his from like the 90s uh-huh, uh-huh. when I was younger I've now checked out a lot of stuff from the 80s uh-huh. um, you know Chambers of Tain the self-titled album so Think of One have you checked really out Think of One recently because yeah. that that album is, is great Black Codes obviously yeah, is yeah. a oh, masterpiece yeah, yeah. but I was, I was listening I was listening to that uh, I was going to uh, once I was in college I was going to hear Marquise Hill play okay uh, who as you know is his sound is basically just like real a, it's like a velvety fuzzy yeah. couch you know and then once I listened to Ambrose I was uh, I was as most people are smitten with his sound yeah. and I actually had an opportunity to ask him about it once and he said well my favorite instrument is the cello he listened to a lot of Lee Morgan uh, which I think that you can hear in sort of the intensity of his approach. Okay. Um, but the sort of like the actual sound, he, he's trying to sound like uh, like a cello. Okay. And um, that, that, that's kind of where I'm coming from. And then you're, yeah. you're talking about uh, Mendez, and, and, which is great. And, yeah. I, and I love guys yeah. like Timofey Dokshitzer uh, and Hockin Well, So I was just going to say, like, one of my favorite... Uh, guys is Sergei Nikarikov yeah, who yeah. doesn't even play on the trumpet really he just plays on the flugelhorn now yeah, yeah. so so like I'm definitely not getting that Doc Severinsen yeah. type of sound if I'm if I'm listening to a lot of yeah, you know yeah. Sergei Nikarikov uh, yeah. so I think I think that it's it's more just to what like I gravitated toward there are, there are guys now who have like definitely more of like a a laser like sound yeah. than I do um but those are just like the guys that I like listening to. So you don't see you don't see what you're doing as a trend in general. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that um, I think that there's definitely like um, I think that 
guys like Ambrose, guys like Marquise have sort of influenced uh, a lot of people's sounds. Mm -hmm. I think that that's something that a lot of people try to get inside. I do think that there's a lot of bad habits that you can learn, uh, like just purely from a brass player's perspective, if you're going to sort of take that approach. I know that I sort of learned a lot of that and uh-huh. uh, trying to get that super earthy, dark, wide yeah. sound. Because um, you wind up having like this giant oral cavity and there's no <laughs> sort of like wind support. You're trying to uh, trying to manufacture that sound instead of just like playing the horn. And that's, of late, that's been more of my approach is yeah. just play the horn right. The sound that you have is the sound that you have. And um, obviously like equipment can affect that but it's mostly what's in your head and as long as it's in your head you're going to be okay but you got to be able to play the horn one of my shortcomings after graduating college I I didn't I I wanted to record a record for a really long time but I didn't Mm -hmm. and I didn't because I didn't feel like I was ready I didn't feel like uh, like I was good enough and I wanted to wait until it was, like, the perfect moment. Yeah. Uh, but eventually, I realized that there, there's not going to be a perfect moment. You just kind of have to do it. Mm-hmm. I I signed up for the studio time. Like, I, I found, I asked my band, uh, yeah. <laughs> like, are we good for these dates? And then I was like, well, I have to put together a lot of music right now. Okay. Uh, and and some, of the, some of the music, I kind of zipped right through and uh and i felt part of me felt kind of bad about that it felt like well this is this is my art this should be being unearthed from my soul this should be something that's like uh deeply deeply meaningful and is it deeply meaningful if i'm just kind of slapping it together yeah Uh, and i'm not and i'm not trying to say i slapped uh a lot of the music on there is is um you know incredibly meaningful to me but i'm more talking about uh putting together parts and uh, and that aspect of it. And and I was recently listening to an interview with the New York Times art critic Jerry Saltz, okay. who, uh, who was saying that if you want to be creative, give yourself a deadline. And I said, well, that sounds familiar. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so it, his, his argument was that it is creative because it's coming from you. It doesn't matter if it's uh, if it's on a deadline. It doesn't matter if you feel like you're being rushed. If you yeah. it, it, you just have to do it. If if you if you never if you never give yourself a deadline, you never take care of business. Are you more creative than if you just write something down? And so that's something that I've been. That's part of my creative process that I'm trying to be a little bit more uh, kind to myself about <laughs> instead of beating myself up. Like, I'm I'm in the process now of writing a suite, um, and I... Uh, it's basically the experience of driving a U-Haul out to California for my future mother-in-law. Um, <laughs> at this point, I've written some, but until uh, a gig last week, I had none of it written. Yeah. And so I, I was like, well, we gotta, 
we got to get this show on the road. So I scheduled myself a gig so that I had to write music. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I have one concluding question. Uh, here's the premise. We want to encourage newer musicians to pursue their dreams. How would you advise them to do this wisely this day and age? Well, I think that I think that it's important to be honest with yourself about what you want to get out of it. I don't think that I don't I don't know if there's a wise way to go about it. I think that if you're working hard, and if you're practicing, and if you're uh, being ambitious, if you're trying to connect with other people in the scene and book yourself gigs and and take care of all that kind of business, I think I, I think that that you're going to be okay. I think that the people who well, let me rephrase that. I don't think that there's a lot of people who get into this thinking that there's some big payoff at the end. I don't know that there's a lot of people who have any illusions about what it's going to be. I think that you just get in it and you work hard. There's not like a there's not like a wise way to go about it. Everybody knows that if you're a musician, the likelihood of you, you know, striking it rich is very low. Yeah. Um, I think that everybody everybody knows that if you if you get into it, you're going to be a teacher. You're going to be a, you're going to be a bunch of things to a lot of people. You're going to be mm-hmm. you're going to be an artist, but you're also going to be a performer, and yeah. you're going to be uh, like I said, a teacher. You're going to be an educator. You're going to be uh, a functional musician. You're going to be a writer, and uh, and that's that's just like the fact, you know. Yeah. Like Robert Chen, concert master for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, mm-hmm. is a teacher. Okay. You know, yeah. Everybody, everybody is 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 a whole bunch of things once they become a musician. Yeah, man, Drew, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it's your willingness to do this. Um, it it means a lot to me and hopefully our listeners uh, to hear your point of view. I appreciate um, that because uh, hearing different points of view, I think, can really uh, bring up. A lot to bear on, on how art can continue to grow. Yeah. And that's something that I think is really a wonderful thing. Drew, thanks so much for doing this. It's, it's been awesome, man. All right. Thanks for having me. We'll see you in the next gig. Yes, sir. <laughs> I want to thank Drew Hansen for sharing his point of view on music, art, and the music business. Yeah, we're from different generations, yet we're not all that far apart. I hope some of you have picked up some positive ideas about making music. I know I did. You can find out more about Drew's music by checking out his CD, Stone Forest Sunshower, on iTunes. Also visit his website, www.drewhansonmusic.com. That's www.drewhansonmusic.com. Okay, for my uh, closing business at the end of the program here, I need to give a shout-out to a few folks. Dave Harrison of Wedge Mouthpieces designs and manufactures my custom line of Drozdov trumpet mouthpieces. I am an endorsing artist. Also, I play gets and trumpets from bass trumpet up to piccolo. Finally, a note of gratitude to Lou Toms, whose recent purchase of my Firebird trumpet will help with the recording project for the Variable D Postulate Ensemble. Finally, we are looking for sponsors, advertisers. Do you own a music store you want to plug? Do you make accessories relevant to musicians that you'd like people to know about? Heck, do you have any kind of business you want to share with my listeners? It doesn't have to be about music. Then just visit www.nickdrawsoff.com. 
That's www.nickdrawsdoff.com and reach out to me via my contact page there. Folks, I hope you'll really consider subscribing to this podcast. I have a very diverse group of guests that I'm going to be bringing in here, and I want to put up a new show every few weeks. So subscribe to the podcast, and if you feel so inclined, give us a a four- or five-star rating. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening, folks. This is studio man Nick Drozov saying, keep making music. Peace. Peace.